Good morning. I will be reading from Acts chapter 12, verses 1 through 17. Uh, it is on page 920 of the Bibles provided underneath the seats in front of you. Uh, while, t- while you're turning, my name is Aaron Holmes. I've been a member here at Joy uh, for almost four years. About that time, Herod the king laid violent hands on some who belonged to the church. He killed James, the brother of John, with the sword. And when he saw that it pleased the Jews, he proceeded to arrest Peter also. This was during the days of unleavened bread. And when he had seized him, he put him in prison, delivering him over to four squads of soldiers to guard him, intending after the Passover to bring him out to the people. So Peter was kept in prison But earnest prayer for him was made to God by the church. Now when Herod was about to bring him out on that very night, Peter was sleeping between two soldiers, bound with two chains, and sentries before the door were guarding the prison. And behold, an angel of the Lord stood next to him, and a light shone in the cell. He struck Peter on the side and woke him, saying, Get up quickly. And the chains fell off his hands. And the angel said to him, dress yourself and put on your sandals. And he did so. And he said to him, wrap your cloak around you and follow me. And he went out and followed him. He did not know what was being done by the angel, but was real, but thought he was seeing a vision. When they had passed the first and the second guard, they came to the iron gate leading into the city. It opened for them of its own accord And when they went out and went along one street, and immediately the angel left him. When Peter came to himself, he said, Now I am sure that the Lord has sent his angel and rescued me from the hand of Herod and from all that the Jewish people were expecting. When he realized this, he went to the house of Mary, the mother of John, whose other name was Mark. There were many gathered together and and were praying. And when he knocked at the door of the gateway, a servant girl named Rhoda came to answer. Recognizing Peter's voice, in her joy, she did not open the gate, but ran in and reported that Peter was standing at the gate. They said to her, you are out of your mind. But she kept insisting that it was so. And they kept saying, it is his angel. But Peter continued knocking, and when they opened, they saw him and were amazed. But monitoring them to them, motioning to them with his hand to be silent, he described to them how the Lord had brought him out of the prison. And he said, tell these things to James and to the brothers. Then he departed and went to another place. This is the word of the Lord. Would you pray with me? Heavenly Father, uh, thank you for giving us your word. I pray that it would be proclaimed by your servant, Larry, through the power of your Holy Spirit. Lord, I pray that we might hear, read, learn, and meditate upon your truths proclaimed here today. I pray that the Spirit would soften our hearts and quiet our minds. And I pray that that those seated here today who do not know you might receive the gospel. All this we ask in Christ's name. Amen. Morning again. Do you remember, uh, do you remember Sebastian? (laughs) That was a great way to start a sermon, right? You remember my friend Sebastian? I told you about him last week. Eager evangelist for his new engagement with his now fiance who, who texted me, though I didn't really know him very well. But he texted me he, he's, because he just loves to spread good news. And I, I, I reminded you, I illustrated Sebastian uh, and his eager gladness uh, to spread good news, that that's sort of an illustration of the people of God who have experienced such, such good news through the life, death, and resurrection of Jesus that we just want to spread it. That, that's a core part of our identity as the people of God. We've been Uh, freed from our sins. Peter says in his first letter that we're a a holy nation and a 
a royal priesthood that we may proclaim the excellencies of him who called us out of darkness and into his marvelous light. And I trust that if you are here and that if you're a Christian, you know something of this eager gladness to spread the good news of Jesus. Maybe you feel like you're not, you don't feel like you're doing it well. Maybe you've been discouraged at times, but I, I trust you know something of this longing and this desire to spread that good news to others. But if you are like me, you may also know a bit of discouragement, maybe even bordering on despair at times as you consider that calling to spread this good news in light of what you see when you look around the world. I mean, it's just, the, the world is just so large. It, it hardly seems like our little lives or our little church could possibly make much of a dent in the task of world evangelization. If you look at the world, it's reported that 74% of the world's population currently live in countries where social hostilities against Christianity are considered high. Uh, 64% of people who are alive right now live where government restrictions on Christianity are high. We should continue to pray for our brother and sister, Dan and Tracy, as they go to one of those places tomorrow. Uh, closer to home, uh, as we've sought to go out with that eager gladness, spreading the good news of the Jesus who means so much to us, perhaps you've found what I have found many times, that most of the people who live around us and who work around us they don't really want to hear about the Lord that we love so much. Maybe they're outright hostile towards us. Maybe they're just apathetic. And that can be discouraging. Uh, we know that we have an adversary, a spiritual adversary, the devil, who opposes the people of God in their mission and labors to blind the minds of unbelievers to the gospel's light. And then, and then there's just us often weak in faith, frail, forgetful, still beset with temptations and struggles with sin, often lethargic and apathetic about the greatest news in the history of the world, full of inconsistencies and doubts about the promises that he's made to us, struggling to obey the Lord in different ways, all the while enduring various kinds of trials. Maybe we've ventured out in faith in some great way. We, we trusted the Lord, we discerned his will, and we, we thought he was calling us to this, and we took steps forward, and then just, just seemed like it, that aspiration just totally falls flat. Or we pray and we pray and we pray for a loved one to come to know the Lord and nothing seems to happen. Do you, do you know a little bit, are you acquainted with a little bit of that kind of discouragement? It, it's not easy to follow Jesus. Jesus told his disciples as much. He said the gate is narrow and the way is what, saints? The way is hard. That leads to life. We know that the task of the Great Commission to, to go, to make disciples of all nations, to bear witness to the risen Christ, to the ends of the earth, we know that's an ongoing task that we ourselves have the responsibility and the privilege of participating in, but it can still feel daunting. It can feel overwhelming. It can, as I said, feel at times discouraging when we honestly look around us and even when we look inside of us. And I begin there because I believe this portion of God's word uh, that Aaron just read aloud to us can put some wind in our sails as we aspire to faithfully bear witness to the Lord Jesus individually in our lives and corporately as a church. Uh, I believe this passage can be of help to us. And the, the main 
point, if I was to sum up that passage that we just heard read, if I was to sum it up in a sentence, uh, I, would, I would put it this way, and this is going to serve, the, the parts of this sentence are going to serve as the outline for our message this morning. I would sum it up like this. Though fiercely opposed by hateful enemies, Christ's church will prevail, but not without prayer. I think that's the message of this particular passage for us. Though fiercely opposed by hateful enemies, that's point number one, Christ's church will prevail. That's point number two. But not without prayer. Point number three. So, uh, number one, though fiercely opposed by hateful enemies. You'll see that the passage here begins, chapter 12, verse 1, about that time. And that reminds us of what we considered last week. We saw last week the gospel arriving in the city of Antioch, and we saw and we read of the very encouraging outpouring of God's grace in that city. Much good spiritual fruit being done. Barnabas came down. He saw the grace of God. He was glad. He went and got Saul from Tarsus. They came. They taught the church for a year. More converts were made. There was a, uh, they were generous. There was a, a relief for the a church in Jerusalem that was going to be suffering from a famine. Around that time, Luke says, even as the Gentile church is experiencing an explosive season of growth and rich spiritual fruit, things back in Jerusalem, we're told, are getting harder. Uh, the, the mother church, if we want to call it that, in Jerusalem is experiencing fierce opposition by hateful enemies. The particular enemy in this passage is Herod the king. We meet several Herods in the New Testament. Uh, This particular Herod is known as Herod Agrippa I. He was the grandson of the man known as Herod the Great, who was the one who sanctioned the slaughter of Israelite babies recorded in Matthew chapter 10 in an effort to snuff out the, the baby Jesus. And we're going to talk more next week about this particular Herod and his motivations and his allegiances. We see there was some political calculations here. Luke tells us he was, he was courting the favor of the Jews. Uh, but for now, you can simply see and recognize that Herod is a hateful enemy who is opposing the people of God. Uh, we're told he laid violent hands on some from the church, including Uh, James, the apostle, he killed him with the sword. Likely that was a beheading. And he intends to do the same with Peter, we're told, just as soon as the days of unleavened bread were passed. It was unlawful for them to execute a prisoner during that season of unleavened bread, that celebration of the Passover. But you can just see as you read the first couple of verses of this chapter, these were dark days for the Jerusalem church. James was the first of Christ's apostles to be martyred. And it seemed pretty certain that another one was just soon to follow. That's two-thirds of Jesus' inner circle. You remember James and John and Peter. They were, they were the inner three with Jesus. And it looked like two of the three of them were about to be killed for Jesus. And Jesus had told them that it would be this way. You remember the, the, the incident where uh, John and James's mother came to Jesus, wanted her sons to be sitting, one at Jesus' right hand and one at his left, and Jesus said, you don't, you don't know what you're asking. And you said, you, can you drink this cup, thinking of the cup of suffering? They said, we can. And, and Jesus said, the cup that I drink, you will drink, and with the baptism with which I am baptized, you will be baptized. And we see in this passage James drinking that cup. But it wasn't just James, it wasn't just Peter who was warned about the prospect of suffering for Jesus. Jesus had given that kind of a a warning, that kind of a preparation to all of his disciples. Uh, In Matthew chapter 10, Jesus says to all of the disciples who were gathered there, brother will deliver brother over to death and the father, his child, and children will rise against parents and have them put to death and you will be hated by all for my name's sake. 
So not just for apostles, but for all of us who follow Jesus, it is costly to follow Jesus. And we can count on that. I, I mentioned it in the pastoral prayer, 2 Timothy 3.12, where Paul says, indeed, all who desire to live a godly life in Christ Jesus will be persecuted. Uh, as I was, as in my study this week, I, I heard of Christian parents in North Korea who do not and feel that they cannot share the gospel with their young children. We think of the call on parents to raise up our children in the nurture and admonition of the Lord. These parents feel that they cannot do that right now with their young children because their kids go to the state-run school, and if it just so happened that one of these kids in the school said that, you know, in our house we worship Jesus as king, that that would be regarded as treason And the authorities in North Korea would go into that home and they would remove those children and they would send the parents to labor camp and it would be almost certain that the parents would never see their children again. It's just important that we be reminded of things like that because we can can see what's going on in our culture and we can sort of lament the degradation of values and, and threats to religious liberty in our country and that's serious and it is happening and there's something to be said about that but we have it, we, America is a dreamland compared to most of the world right now. But we know opposition here around us as well. Some of us have known, as I prayed earlier, have known estrangement from loved ones because we won't join with them in celebrating what is sinful. Some of us have concern about the security of our jobs if we go on record as a follower of Jesus devoted to living our lives according to the teaching of the Bible. Some of us know what it is to be mocked or shunned by neighbors or classmates when we have gone public about our faith. Some of us even have children or grandchildren that don't really want anything to do with us because they hate our Jesus and therefore they don't want to be associated with us. In all of these different ways, whether it's the kind of intensity that maybe is experienced in North Korea or many other places in the world, or maybe it's not quite that severe, but still incredibly painful that, that we see around us, all of it illustrates the fact that we are involved in a war and there are malicious enemies who are seeking to oppose us, who hate us. Ephesians chapter 6 Remember, we preached a whole sermon of series on this a couple years ago. We do not wrestle, the Apostle Paul said, against flesh and blood, but against the rulers, against the authorities, against the cosmic powers over this present darkness, against the spiritual forces of evil in the heavenly places. That's ultimately why it's hard to follow Jesus. Because we have spiritual adversaries who are seeking to destroy us. Did you ever wonder why it's so difficult to confess your sins? Why is it so difficult sometimes to walk in the way of obedience? Why are we so hesitant? We have this amazing news to celebrate. Why are we so afraid to open our mouths and talk about our Jesus? Why is it so daunting to extend forgiveness to someone who has wronged us? Why is prayer or attention to Bible reading so marred by distraction? Husbands, why, why, is, it such a, why is it so difficult to initiate times of prayer with our wives or to gather our children and teach them the Bible? Why does it seem like it's always Sunday morning when stuff's going crazy at home and nothing's working out and we're all rattled and frazzled as we come to worship God? By the looks on your faces, that's happened to some of you. We know what that is like. It's because we have adversaries who are opposed to us, who hate us, who would like to destroy us, who are continually working against what our Lord is warring for. 
And, and part of our standing firm against those adversaries, and the reason why I'm, I'm, I'm belaboring this, but this is a kind of an obvious point, let's just move on, but I'm, 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 I'm wanting to make sure you're aware we are hated by malicious enemies because part of our standing firm against those enemies is our being ready for it and not being caught off guard when things are difficult because God's word has prepared us for this. So Peter, Peter delivered here dramatically. We'll talk about that. Peter would write in the first, later in the first century, he would write in 1 Peter chapter four, beloved, do not be surprised at the fiery trial when it comes upon you to test you as though something strange were happening to you. Don't be surprised. Sadly, we're still surprised. I'm still surprised when things aren't going my way, when things are difficult. And so we need to be prepared for it. If we would be faithful to the Lord Jesus, we too will know the fierce opposition of hateful enemies. Uh, Young people, children, teenagers, I think it's important that you know this. This is not the easiest thing to hear. It's not fun to hear. I understand that. But it's important that you understand that the world will not love you if you love Jesus. There is pain, there's difficulty and hardship involved in faithfully following Jesus. We can expect the fierce opposition of hateful enemies when we give ourselves to following the Lord Jesus. But with that expectation, we can also be assured that though fiercely opposed by hateful enemies, Christ's church will prevail. Luke is very thorough in this passage to chronicle all that seems stacked against Peter and the church on this particular occasion. Did you notice all the detail that we're given here? We've got Herod Agrippa, right, with all of the authority and influence of the Roman Empire, all of his power and prestige. He's laying violent hands on some who belong to the church. There's hatred from the Jewish leaders as well, conspiring with Herod and the authority of Rome. James has been killed. Peter is about to be killed. And not only is he in prison, but again, Luke is just meticulous here to tell us this is a maximum security situation. He's being guarded, we're told, by four squads of soldiers, verse four. That probably means four sets of four, 16 soldiers, and they would rotate so that some of them could rest while the others were keeping watch. He's asleep between two soldiers. He's bound with chains. There are sentries at the door. There's a large iron gate at the perimeter, and the plan, it seems, is that Herod is about to bring out Peter to the crowds and present him, maybe just the way they presented the Lord Jesus uh, a, a few years earlier, presenting him for mockery and for scourging and for abuse and ultimately for death. This, this is, I mean, we just get a picture here at the beginning of this passage of everything arrayed against Christ and his cause. And I I think that does remind us. You might say, well, I'm glad I don't have a Herod hunting me down. We do. You do, Christian. Our adversary, the devil, prowls around like a roaring lion seeking some to devour. We we didn't sing it this morning, but the, the prince of darkness grim, right? We're told his craft and power are great and armed with cruel hate on earth is not his equal. He hates us. He wants to devour us. It's as though everything is arrayed against us. That's why evangelism is hard. That's why family worship is hard. We have an adversary. Everything, it seems, is stacked against us. Do you you remember a a few weeks back, uh, our brother Kyle preached to us from Psalm 2. Do you remember Psalm 2? The nations rage and the people's plot in vain and the kings of the earth set themselves and, take, and the rulers take counsel together against the Lord and against his anointed. Do you remember what we were told in Psalm 2 is the posture of God towards that rage and rebellion? Anyone remember? 
Let's not discourage our brother Kyle. Do you remember? He laughs. That's right. They remember Kyle. And you've read the psalm. You just know the psalm from the other than just the sermon. But he who sits in the heavens laughs. God is not feeling threatened by the opposition. It's real. We need to take it seriously. We need to be alert. We need to be attentive. God is not threatened. That's the point of saying he laughs. And that's what we see illustrated in Acts 12. I think the rest of Acts 12 is one big laughter of God at the rage of Herod. It says here, verse five, so Peter was kept in prison, but, that's an important but, but earnest prayer for him was made to God by the church. And we'll get to the role of prayer That's point number three. But right now, let's just be clear that prayer is powerful because it connects us to God in heaven and the God who sits in heaven laughs at all of his opposition. He laughs at the plans of men, that they cannot frustrate the plans and purposes of God. The nations rage, but the Lord who reigns, the Almighty, is not threatened by their rage. And so even when conditions seem impossible, when they seem helpless to us, they're not a strain for the Lord's almighty hand to prevail over. And that's what we see happen in Peter's life. This whole account of Peter's escape from a maximum security situation is crafted to show us that it wasn't so much an escape as it was a rescue, a divine rescue. What's Peter doing to contribute to, to this escape? He's sleeping. I mean, this, did you, if you read through the passage as, uh, through the week in, in getting prepared for worship or as Aaron read it, did you find that there was like a little bit of chuckle in you as you're listening to this story? I think it's actually intended to be a bit humorous. Peter is asleep. He's so soundly asleep that he, the, the uh, light of the angel bursting into the cell, that doesn't wake him up. He needs to be struck by the angel to be awakened. He, the, the angel has to guide him like, Peter, get, come on, get up, man. Get, get dressed. Put your sandals, your sandals, Peter. Like, he, Peter is, he is he's, he's, ob- he's obedient, but he doesn't even know what's going on, we're told. He doesn't realize what's happening. The chains fall off his hands. They pass by the guards. I love this phrase. I've, I didn't write down the verse number. It says, the iron gates opened of its own accord by themselves. How does a gate open of its own accord? Through the working of God. From beginning to end, this rescue is the mighty working of God. And, And by the time we get to verse 11, Peter finally actually realizes what's happening. He says, oh, the Lord has rescued me. The Lord sent his angel, he has rescued me. He goes to Mary's home and they were praying And again, I think this is supposed to be humorous. They're praying for him. The prayers are answered. Peter's there. They don't believe that he's there. They're telling this lady, Rhoda, you're out of your mind. But they've been praying, and they've been praying earnestly, it says in verse 5. The whole... The whole passage is crafted to show God is doing something great. And prayer is important. We'll come to prayer. But it's showing us it really wasn't so much the prayers. It was the God being prayed to who does exceedingly and immeasurably more than we could ask or imagine. I I love the way John Stott, welcome back. Stotts, welcome back. I figured I'd quote your Uncle John. I don't think there's actually a, a, a a family relation there, but... I love the way John Stott summarizes this uh, dramatic turn of events that happens in this chapter. And I'm going to play spoiler a little bit. We didn't read the end of the chapter. Uh, we're going to come to it next week. But it's been, this has been in circulation for 2,000 years. I don't feel like I'm really spoiling anything for you. But he, Stott puts it this way. At the beginning of the chapter, Herod is on the rampage, arresting and persecuting. At the end, he is himself struck down and dies. The chapter opens with James dead, Peter in prison, and Herod triumphing. It closes with Herod dead, Peter free, and the word of God triumphing. Such is the power of God to overthrow hostile human plans and to establish his own in their place. God reigns. God delivers. Kids, 
Can you think, kids, of another story in the Bible? Not this one, but another story in the Bible. And I'm look, there's lots of them, okay? So I'm not just looking for one answer. Another story in the Bible where God's people have strong enemies who are against them, and it doesn't seem like God's people can win, but then God does something amazing to bring victory to his people. Come on, kids, tell me. Samson. 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 God, was, God rescued the people, and God brought judgment on the Philistines through Samson, even though Samson was a little... He was a little shady. We got sermons on the website about that too. Kids, anyone, can you think of another story? Yes, is that at? Moses, Moses right? The people of Israel in Egypt, they were in bondage with mighty Pharaoh and God brought them out. That's right, Addy. Anyone else? Bray. David and Goliath, right? Little David, what's he gonna do? Oh, he's got the power of God to prevail over Goliath. Jace, the Tower of Babel, the, Tower of Babel, the people are trying, the, the people proudly, they're trying to build a way to God and God's like, uh, no, I'm gonna scatter you. <laughs> There's lots of stories like this. How about the fiery furnace, right? Daniel and his, Daniel's friends in the fiery furnace or Daniel in the lion's den or bringing down the walls of the city of Jericho. This is a big theme throughout the scriptures. And here in this Jerusalem prison, we see one more illustration that God has shown in many ways already up to this point, that though fiercely opposed by hateful enemies, Christ's church will prevail. And we, we have known that in our own lives, beloved, have we not? Maybe as you hear me talk about this, you think, this is what I started thinking. You know, that would be great. My faith, I'll tell you what, my, my faith, my feelings of lethargy and apathy, boy, that I would really be strengthened if I saw something like this, if I saw this kind of clear, dramatic deliverance, I would be strengthened. But I haven't seen anything like that. Where's my deliverance? Well, I don't want to minimize the heartbreak that there is in unanswered prayer and unfulfilled desires. That's real and that's hard. And if you're in a season where you're really struggling and weary because of that, please do come talk to me or an elder. We'd love to pray for you and do what we can to encourage you in that. Certainly don't want to make light of that. But can I remind you, Christians, that even if you're praying, 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 it seems like nothing's happening, you have, in fact, tasted and seen an unimaginable deliverance that you should never take for granted. How is it? Do you remember the question I asked a couple weeks ago? I know it resonated with some of you because you've told me about it in the past few weeks. That question I asked at the beginning of the sermon a couple weeks ago, how'd you get here? How is it that we, that you, that I, obstinate, rebellious, dead to God, could be here worshiping the Lord, singing about salvation belongs to our God who sits upon the throne, singing with joy, every knee will bow and every tongue will shout all glory to Jesus alone. How's that possible? It's because God delivered you from trouble in a mighty and miraculous way. When I, when I read this incident about Peter's deliverance, I can't help but think that Charles Wesley must have been meditating upon this. I don't know why. Lots of hymns come to mind after, you know, when we're, it's way past time to prepare the order of worship. I've just got to think Charles Wesley was meditating upon this particular passage when he penned the words, Long my imprisoned spirit lay. That's a hard song to sing, but it's a great song to sing, isn't it? We love to sing that song. Fast bound in sin and nature's night, thine eye diffused a quickening ray. I woke, the dungeon flamed with light, my chains fell off, my heart was free, I rose, went forth, and followed thee. When you look at Peter, delivered dramatically, really through no work or effort of his own at all, you're getting a picture of the greatness of your own deliverance from sin and death and hell. 
We were not just asleep in a prison. We were dead in our sins, beloved. Dead. Dead in our trespasses and sins, following the course of this world, following the prince of the power of the air, right? Slaves to the devil, living among the passions of our flesh, carrying out the desires of our body and mind, by nature children of wrath. But when we were dead in our sins, when we had been taken captive by the devil to do his will, when we had made ourselves God's enemies, kicking and raging against his wise and loving rule, God rescued us. He delivered us. Colossians chapter one, he has delivered us from the domain of darkness and transferred us to the kingdom of his beloved son in whom we have redemption, the forgiveness of sins. And if you have come here this morning and you're visiting with us and you've not heard this good news of salvation that is in Jesus, that is what brings us here, this is what God has brought you here, especially to hear this morning, that God, who is good and loving and wise and made us to honor him, is merciful and kind to deal with people who have rebelled against him by sending Jesus. God in Christ left the splendor of heaven and he came came down on a rescue mission and Jesus lived the perfect life that you and I have failed to live. He died on the cross and he rose so that we would be redeemed, so that we would be freed from the guilt and the punishment of our sins so that we could be transferred into the kingdom of the beloved son. And if you're here this morning and you are still unsubmitted to Jesus, you are one of these enemies that God speaks of, but he loves his enemies and he has brought you here to, to hear the message of salvation in Christ that you might turn from your sin and that you might look to Jesus and believe upon him today. And for the majority of you here who have heard that message and believed in that message, you have been, it says in Colossians 3, you've been raised with Christ, you've died and your life is hidden with Christ in God. And when Christ who is your life appears, you will appear with him in glory. That's a dramatic deliverance, beloved. We may know a great deliverance in this life and we may not know it. You might get a Peter-like answer to prayer or you might not. James didn't. Do we think that they were praying fervently and earnestly for Peter but they weren't praying for the other Christians who were suffering? Weren't praying for Stephen when he got stoned to death? We may get a deliverance in this life. We may see some dramatic answers to prayers in this life but ultimately the deliverance that we long for is not a tie to this world. Uh, Don Carson, uh, a seminary professor, author, he tells this story about going to visit a friend suffering from a number of, of, of difficult illnesses and they were protracted and his health was poor and, and Don Carson went to this guy and said, you know, how, how are you? He said, I'm not suffering from anything that a good resurrection can't fix. <laughs> yeah, amen, amen is right. Let the church say amen. Secure in Christ, hidden in Christ, maybe not an answer to prayer. I, you know, again, I, I mentioned, uh, I forget, the, that's Bernard Gilpin, I mentioned that's dramatic deliverance last, uh, last week from Bloody Queen Mary, but you know, Bloody Queen Mary, she killed Nicholas Ridley. She, she killed Hugh Latimer. She killed lots of people. William Tyndale, there's wonderful people of God burned at the stake burned for believing upon the Lord Jesus and seeking to translate the scriptures in a way that we could have it and understand it. Oh, but they were delivered. Nothing that a good resurrection couldn't fix. And when we gather around that throne, when we're singing Revelation 7, salvation belongs to our God. You know the picture we get of those saints in Revelation 7? Coming out of the tribulation, it says they are before the throne of God and they serve him day and night in his temple and he who sits on the throne will shelter them with his presence. They shall hunger no more, neither thirst any more. The sun shall not strike them nor any scorching heat for the lamb in the midst of the throne will be their shepherd and he will guide them to springs of living water and God will wipe away every tear from their eyes. 
And that will be the day when we really, truly, fully understand the words of the psalmist when he said in Psalm 34, many are the afflictions of the righteous, but the Lord has delivered him out of them all. Many afflictions now. Deliverance does not mean not experiencing them. It means a resurrection that is gonna make it all worth the pain. That's why the apostles were so devoted to preaching the resurrection of Jesus. That's why Paul says, if it's in this life only we have hope in Christ, we're of all people most to be pitied. But in fact, Christ has been raised. And therefore, though the church is beset with, though we face much hatred from fierce enemies, Christ's church will prevail. And while we wait, what we do is we give ourselves to prayer. Point number three, briefly, we give ourselves to prayer. Undoubtedly, among the highest privileges that our Lord Jesus shared with us is the privilege of unhindered, direct access to the throne of God in prayer. And that's what the church was doing while Herod was raging. Right? We see it. I mean, I think this is intentional. Luke is to, right, right in the middle or, or right on the, fr- on the front and on the back end of this dramatic deliverance, we see the church praying, right? Verse five, Peter was kept in prison, but earnest prayer for him was made to God by the church. And we read, we read about all the, the decks totally stacked against Peter, and then we see this miraculous, dramatic deliverance, and verse uh, 12, when he realized, when Peter realized what God had done, he went to the house of Mary, That's where many people were gathered and were praying. Luke wants us to see that this deliverance came in part through the faithfulness of the people of God to be praying. It is on the one hand a commendable, we're told they were earnestly praying. This word is used only one other time in relationship to prayer in the New Testament. And it is talking, it's, it's Jesus in the Garden of Gethsemane when he prayed earnestly and, was, and his sweat was like great drops of blood. They were praying earnestly. And yet we do see, and I made mention of it earlier, they, 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 they were apparently not as expectant as they could have been, right? Praying earnestly, praying earnestly, praying earnestly. God brings the answer to prayer. They're like, what, not, no, that couldn't have happened. You're out of your mind. Praise God that the effectiveness of our prayers does not hinge on the size of our faith, but the size of the God to whom we call on in prayer. But we see here, and it's, this, is, this is a major theme in the book of Acts. It's been, it's been so long. We started the book of Acts over a year ago, so you could lose sight of this in the slow study that we're doing. But we see this is how Jesus built his church. We're told that when, when Jesus he gathered them there before he went to heaven. He told them to wait. He would send power from heaven, the Holy Spirit, and they would be Christ's witnesses. And what we see in Acts 1 is we see him waiting, and they were waiting prayerfully, Acts 1.14. These were with one accord devoting themselves to prayer. They needed to find a replacement for Judas, and so what they do? They prayed, Acts 1.24. On the day of Pentecost, we see a great a message that Peter preaches and by the power of the Holy Spirit, people are pierced and they repent and they're baptized and there's 3,000 added and we're told that those people, they were devoted to the apostles' teaching and to the fellowship and the breaking of bread and they were devoted to the prayers. Then we see in chapter three, we see Peter and John going up to the temple at the hour of prayer and we see that after they get imprisoned, they, they are praying for boldness to keep persevering, Acts chapter 4, 31. That's why when a ministry crisis hits and the widows are not being cared for the way they ought, the apostles recognize, hey, we, can't, we gotta stay devoted to prayer and the ministry of the word. We need to raise up some servants to tend to this need so that we can keep praying. And what do they do when they recognize those first deacons in the church? They commission them with prayer, Acts 6.6. 6. Stephen, we see, the first Christian martyr, is stoned to death, and is, as his life is coming to an end, he prays for the forgiveness of those who are killing him. 
And we should note that part of the answer to that prayer was the conversion of Saul that we read about in chapter nine. The Holy Spirit falls upon new believers in Samaria through prayer. Saul's encounter with the risen Lord leads him to prayer as he waits for Ananias to lay hands on him and restore his sight, Acts chapter nine, verse 11. Peter heals a woman at the end of chapter nine named Tabitha by prayer, chapter nine, verse 40. The gospel begins to go to the Gentiles. God sees Cornelius, he's been praying. He doesn't have the truth about Jesus yet, but he's been praying. And then he prepares Peter for his ministry to the Gentiles, which is totally outside of his, 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 his ability to conceive. He prepares him in prayer. In prayer, the vision comes of the sheet fall, coming down from heaven. Prayer, prayer, prayer. Acts is a chronicle of what the risen Christ did in response to the prayers of his people. We are gathered, I don't think it's an understatement to say, we are gathered here this morning because of the earnest prayers of the people of God, backed by the almighty power of God, have prevailed over all the powers of hell and the schemes of men that have sought to destroy Christ's church for the last 2,000 years. For 2,000 years, the enemies of Christ have been preparing the obituary for the church. And for 2,000 years, the enemies of Christ just keep dying and the church just keeps moving on. Herod is dead. Roman Empire's dead. Bloody Queen Mary, she's dead. Chairman Mao is dead. And, and all the ones who are raging now, they'll be dead one day too. Putin and Kim Jong-un and every Democrat and every Republican who refuses to bow the knee to King Jesus, they will be gone but the gates of hell shall not prevail against his church. Though fiercely opposed by hateful enemies, Christ's church will prevail, but not without prayer. I don't think you need much application here. The application is pray. <laughs> pray. Pray earnestly, pray together, pray expectantly, and even when you don't feel very expectant, just keep praying. See, I love it. They, they obviously did not have a whole lot of hope that this prayer for Peter's deliverance was gonna happen, but they were still praying. Feel like you don't have much, you don't have much passion, you don't have much earnestness, keep praying. Because it's not about the size of our faith and it's not about the quality of our earnestness. It's about the kingly rule of our Lord Jesus and his power to deliver and save. What keeps you from praying, beloved? What keeps you from praying? Do you remember the story of Moses Hall? It's a sincere question. Raise your hand. Do you remember me telling you about Moses Hall? Raise your hand if you do. I'm getting a, I'm getting a this. I get one of this. And that's, I mean, you know, I like it when you remember. It was a few years ago, and I've kind of felt bad that I was going to conclude this sermon the same way I've concluded another sermon, but you just made me feel okay about it. <laughs> Praise God. Moses Hall was an African Jamaican pastor in the early 1800s. And there were some African Christians who had been enslaved in Jamaica and they were gathering regularly to pray. And determined to put an end to the slave meeting, some slave owners broke up a prayer meeting being led by a slave named David, uh, who was one of Moses's Hall, Moses Hall's assistants. And, and they seized David and they beheaded him. And they put his body on display uh, in the center of the village as a warning to the other slaves to stop this praying. And they, they dragged Moses Hall up to that grisly site and they said, Moses Hall, who is that? And he said, that's, that's David. And they said, do you know what he's up there for? And, and, and Moses Hall said, for praying. And the, the slave owner said, no more of your prayer meetings. If we catch you at it, we shall serve you as we have served David. And as, and as the crowd watched, Moses knelt down beside that pole and he said, let's pray. And the other African Christians knelt with him as he prayed for the salvation of the murderers. And they were so astonished and angry, they just actually stormed off and left Moses and his friends to keep praying. 
What keeps you, beloved, from praying? What keeps you from praying together? In Acts 12, the early Christians gathered for prayer to remind themselves that they were really needy and that God was really mighty. And the more that Christianity is opposed and despised by people around us, the more we need to be a people devoted to praying together to remind us of what will be the reality on that last day. Today, the enemies of the church, they're not, merely, they're not mainly political or national or ethnic. The great enemies are spiritual. And the great battles today are not fought with swords or with political advertisements, which I'm so sick of seeing. The, the main battles are fought with the gospel of Jesus Christ in the power of the Holy Spirit, with words of truth and with deeds of love and righteousness, and all of it is backed by and inflamed by prayer. Though fiercely opposed by hateful enemies, Christ's church will prevail, dear saints, count on it, but not without prayer. So as we wait for that deliverance that our hearts yearn for, may we be found to be a congregation united together in prayer. Love you, brothers and sisters. Father, we ask for your grace and your help to be a people who are manifestly dependent upon you in prayer. We know trials, we know weariness, we know discouragement. Guard us, Father, from allowing those, that weariness and that discouragement to, to draw us away from prayer to become cold and lethargic. May, may the experiences that we have of opposition and difficulty, may it drive us all the more to you, trusting you to pray eagerly and expectantly and earnestly, and even when we feel like we've got nothing, can, can we trust, Lord, that, that by your sacrifice of Christ, even our weak prayers are acceptable to you because of Jesus. We pray that we would be a people marked by prayerful devotion to you and eager waiting for you to bring the deliverance that our hearts long for. We ask for this all in Christ's name. Amen.